Today I'd like to focus on our second reading from St. Paul, who says, Avoid immorality. Avoid immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Now, the original Greek word translated here as immorality is pornea. A word that signifies not just immorality in general, but rather, more specifically, sexual immorality. And so today, I'd like to speak about human sexuality and the virtue of chastity. Now, this is a very sensitive topic, of course, and therefore, for the sake of the little ones here present, I've tried to use language that is as modest as absolutely possible. I've also used very technical language uh, that will go over their heads, but will also require us adults to listen in very closely. St. Paul continues on in our second reading. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Therefore glorify God in your body. Notice how Paul uses the phrase, your body, on the one hand, and the pronoun, you, on the other. He switches back and forth between the phrase and the pronoun, as if their meanings are synonymous. The presupposition here is that you are your body. Sounds simple, but it needs to be emphasized. This presupposition is at the foundation of the historical Christian understanding of human sexuality. The question is, what is the relationship between ourselves and our bodies? How we answer this question will, in the last analysis, determine whether we appreciate the traditional Christian understanding of the virtue of chastity, or whether instead we subscribe to the ethos and mores of permissiveness that pervade our contemporary culture. What is at stake here are two different understandings of the human body and its relationship to the thinking and willing self. On the one hand, we have the Christian understanding of the human person as an integrated whole, a body-soul unity. This body-soul unity, however, is not just any kind of unity. Body and soul are united so closely together that they form one thing. As the Catechism teaches, spirit and matter in man are not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. On this account, the individual human person is to be identified with his body as much as with his soul. You are your body. Now, opposed to this integrated vision of the human person, we have a philosophy of fragmentation that understands the human being not as a body-soul unity, but as an autonomous thinking self 
who is only loosely or accidentally bound to a body. On this view, the self need not identify in any profound manner with the body. The body, with all its biological hardwiring, can even be seen as limiting the freedom of the self. These two different understandings of the human person lead to two very different ethical visions. And this is especially seen in how each relates to the biological fact that human sexuality is intrinsically ordered towards the conception of new life. On the second view, the fragmented view of the human person, the human body as sexually differentiated and ordered towards procreation is something that is not necessarily relevant to romantic love. It can even get in the way of it. The natural structure of my body places no moral obligation on me as an individual. My body is more like a piece of property that that stands outside my thinking and willing self. If I so choose, I can manipulate this piece of property and get the best of it. My body's sexuality might possess a natural tendency to procreation, but I don't have to let this fact limit me. I can outsmart my body and use technology to bend it to my will. On this view, the supreme norm of morality is the consent of the thinking and willing self. As long as there is so-called consent, one or two or more adult individuals can do just about anything they want with their bodies. An example of this philosophy of fragmentation is seen in the person who, though admitting that their body is male or female, nonetheless believes that their true self is really of the opposite sex and undergoes surgery in an attempt to make their body conform to their supposed real self. Now, this is an extreme example, of course, but the same mindset is implicit, at least, in many other behaviors deemed perfectly normal today. The same mindset is implicit, for example, in the man who undergoes surgery for the purpose of rendering himself sterile. It is seen in a man who, in the very act of conjugal relations, an act that is intrinsically procreative, uses a device to frustrate that act's procreative power. The same is seen in those who engage in relations before marriage. Marriage alone respects the intrinsically procreative nature of the sexual act because it alone ensures that the potential fruits of this act, the child, will have his mother and father in his life in the stable manner he needs to become a well-developed person. Thus, these behaviors, from contraceptive acts within marriage to relations before marriage, all presuppose that the body, with its sexual differentiation and innate tendency towards procreation, is somehow outside of my true self and can therefore be ignored or circumvented without any real cost to me as a person. 
For the Christian vision of the human person, though, the human body is not alien to myself. It is rather an expression of myself. If I sin against the procreative powers that are natural to my body, I sin against myself. I degrade and I hurt myself. If I pursue sexual pleasure in isolation from its procreative purpose, I begin to unravel the integrity of my very person. This is how we should understand the virtue of chastity, a virtue that works in the opposite direction of personal disintegration. The Christian who, by the grace of God, struggles to grow in chastity, engages in a journey of personal reintegration and healing. A chaste Christian, whether married or unmarried, is an integrated and whole person. He is not divided in himself. The chaste person possesses an inner integrity that is not shameless, but is rather free of shame. He has the confidence to look the world straight in the eye. Because of the unity between the soul and the body, the inner self-control of the chaste Christian bestows upon him or her a physical beauty that radiates from the face and can be seen in the posture and the bearing of the body, making him or her, in fact, very attractive. Finally, the chaste person has an inner peace, which leads to a deep and stable sense of contentment and even joy. In closing, let us return again to St. Paul's words. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I have mostly spoken in this homily about how the call to chastity is grounded in the good of the human person. But St. Paul here is teaching us that the call to chastity is grounded also in our identity as baptized members of the body of Christ. You see, sins against chastity bring about a contradiction, not only within ourselves, but also within the mystical body of Christ. They bring shame upon the church and upon Christ our Lord. And that is the deeper reason why we need to pursue chastity. We are members of Christ, and we are members of one another. Together we gather here today to participate in the sacred liturgy, which is nothing less than the worship that Christ himself offers to the Father in the Holy Spirit. If we truly love God and Jesus, and if we love our fellow Christians, we will honor them by living lives that are consistent with our baptismal profession, lives that are characterized by the virtue of chastity.